December 21st, 1963. Jackie? Oh, Yeah. Oh, knee deep in all sorts of uh, decisions and unpacking and things and, and, the, and, the, and the recalcitrant Congress and so forth. But uh, also ready to go home and see Ken folks and sit by the fine telltale. <laughs> Home well, we were going home tomorrow night at uh, immediately after lighting the Christmas tree, but now it's uncertain. Just in front of Mr. Earhart, I hope that you have well that the, the children are gay and happy, and that the weather is beautiful, and that you get some rest. Lady Bridges, so thoughtful to think of me. And I know you've been calling Jane Wrightsman, and it's just so sweet, it makes me cry. <laughs> Not at all. I've, got, I've just got to get to work and learn a lot. Uh, Lemon wants to say another word, and lots of love to you. Oh, same to you, and my well, love to all your family. She was a natural campaigner, successful businesswoman, and a savvy political partner to her husband. Coming up, conversations between President Lyndon Johnson and his most trusted advisor, his wife. Ladybird. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We begin on November 30th, 1963. The now First Lady records her thoughts of the events of one week earlier. It was Lyndon, as usual, who thought of it, although I wasn't going to leave without doing it. He said, you'd better try to see if you can see Jackie and Nellie. We didn't know what had happened to John. I asked the Secret Service if I could be taken taken to them. Uh, they began to lead me. Up one corridor, back stairs, down another. Suddenly, I found myself face to face with Jackie. In a small hall, I think it was right outside the operating You always think of her, or somebody like her, as being insulated, protected, uh, sort of on Olympus. She was quite alone. I don't think I ever saw anybody so much alone in my life. I went up to her, put my arms around her, and said something I'm sure it was quite banal, like, God help us all, because my feelings for her were too tumultuous to put into words. And then I went in to see Nellie. There it was different, because Nellie and I have gone through so many things together since about 1938. I hooked her and we both cried and I said, Nettie, it's going to be all right. There's been enough bad that's already happened. 
It wasn't only the president I was thinking about. It was Kathleen, of course. And Ellie said, yes, John's going to be all right. Among her many other fine qualities, she is also tough. Then I turned and went back to the, the small white room where Lyndon still was. Mr. Kildoff and Kenny O'Donnell were coming and going. I think it was from Kenny's face and from Kenny's voice. Bible 
Mrs. Kennedy had arrived by that time and the coffin. And there, in the very narrow confines of the plane, with Jackie on his left, her hair falling in her eyes, but very composed, and then Lyndon, and then I was on his right, Judge Hughes with a Bible in front of him and a cluster of Secret Service people and congressmen we'd known a long time. Lyndon took the oath of office. It's odd at a time like that, uh, the very... <sighs> the little things that come to you and the moment of deep compassion you have for people who are really not at the center of the tragedy. I heard a Secret Service man say in the most desolate voice and I and I heard for him we've never lost a president in the service. And then when Police Chief Curry of Dallas came on the plane and said to Mrs. Kennedy, Mrs. Kennedy, believe me, we did everything we possibly could. God, that was a brave thing for that man to do. We all sat around in the plane, but rather speechless. Mrs. Kennedy, we had been quickly ushered first into the main private presidential cabin, out of which we very quickly got to when we saw where we were, because that is where Mrs. Kennedy should be. The casket was in the hall. I went in to see Mrs. Kennedy, and I don't Oh, it was a very, very hard thing to do. She made it as easy as possible. She said things like, Oh, Lady Bird, it's always good. We've liked you, too, so much. She said, I remember other things she said. Oh, what if I had not been there? I am so glad I was there. I remember things I said. I, I looked at her. <laughs> Mrs. Kennedy's dress was stained with blood. One leg was almost entirely covered with it. And her right glove was caked, that immaculate woman. It was caked with blood, her husband's blood. She always wore gloves like she was used to them. I never could. And that was somehow one of the most poignant sights. Exquisitely dressed and caked in blood. I asked her if I couldn't get somebody to come in to help her 
change and she says oh no that's all right perhaps later i'll ask for mary gallagher but not right now and then with something if for the person that gentle that dignified you can say had an element of fierceness she said i want them to see what they have done to jack she said a lot of other things like what if i had not been there oh i'm so glad i was there and some things that made it so much easier for us like oh ladybird We've all liked you both so much. I tried to express something of how we felt. I said, oh, Mrs. Kennedy, you know we never even wanted to be vice president. And now, dear God, it's come to this. Well, I would have given anything to help her. There was nothing I could do to help her. So rather quickly, I left and went back to the airplane, to the main part of the room where everybody was seated. The ride to Washington was silent and strained, each with his own thoughts. One of mine was something I had said about Lyndon in an interview a long time ago that he's a good man in a tight spot. I even remember one little thing he said in that hospital room. Tell the children, get a Secret Service man with them. Finally, we got to Washington. There was a cluster of people watching. Many bright lights. The casket went off first, and Mrs. Kennedy and the family who had come to join them. And then we followed. Lyndon made a very simple, very brief, and I think appealing and strong talk to the folks there. Only about four sentences, I believe. We got in cars, we dropped him off in a hurry at the White House, and I came home. Lady Bird Johnson's personal diary entry from November 30th, 1963, recalling the day President Kennedy was shot. Lady Bird could talk to her husband in a way few others could. Here she is on March 7th, 1964, offering her review of his performance at a White House press conference. Mrs. Johnson is calling, asking if she could speak to the president for a moment concerning his press conference. You want to listen for about one minute to uh, yes, uh, my critique, or would you rather wait till tonight? Yes, tonight? ma'am. I, I'm willing now. <laughs> um, I thought that you looked strong, firm, and like a reliable guy. Your looks were, were splendid. The close-ups were much better than the distance ones. Well, you can't get them to do it, well, well, I will say this, there were more close-ups than there were distance ones. Uh, during the statement, you were a little breathless, and there was too much looking down, and I think it was a little too fast. Not enough change of pace. Uh, drop in voice at the end of sentence. 
Um, there was a considerable pickup in drama and interest when the questioning began. Uh, your voice was not noticeably better, and your facial expression was noticeably better. Um, the mechanics of the room were not too good, because although I heard you well throughout every bit of it, I did not hear your questioners clearly. Uh, well, the questioners won't talk. Uh, some of them you could hear, and, 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 and but in generally you could not hear them very well. Uh, every now and then you need a good, crisp answer for change of pace, and therefore I was very glad when you answered one man. Uh, the answer to, uh, is no to both of your questions. Um, you, I thought your answer on Lodge was good. I thought your uh, answer on Vietnam was good. I really didn't like the answer on the gall because I think I've heard you say, and I, but I believe you actually have said out loud that you don't leave your out of the country this year. So I don't think you can very well say that you meet him any time that's convenient to both people. Well, one way can one can be arranged. I'm not going out of this country. I didn't say where I'd go. I didn't say I'd go out of the country at all. Did uh, no, I guess... The press says has a reaffirm that I wouldn't go. I see. Uh -huh. Well, I, then I just didn't hear, didn't, didn't, didn't get the meaning of it that everybody else did. Uh, I think the outstanding things were that the close-ups were excellent. Uh, you uh, need to learn, when you're going to have a prepared text, you need to uh, 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 have the opportunity to study it a little bit more and to read it with a little more uh, conviction and interest and change of pace. Uh, well, the trouble is that they criticize you for taking so much time. They won't use it all for questions. Not all conversations were so serious. On August 21st, 1964, the president and Montana Senator Mike Mansfield called the First Lady after learning that she had kept a ceremonial key to the city of Billings and that the city would like it back. All right. Trying to get her for you, sir. I didn't call you, dear. Are you calling me? Yes, I am. I hope I didn't wake you. Oh, you did not. I'm sitting right here having an important and interesting conversation uh, with Ed Weisel and Mr. Broderick and uh, Mr. Rosenwald. Senator Mansfield's here with me, Bird. Hello, Bird. Yes, dear. Senator Mansfield's here with me. And uh, they gave you a key out there, Billings did. And the mayor listed an item that appears in the Herald Tribune this morning. It said, First Lady Paul. when they gave Ms. Lennon B. Johnson the key to the city of Billings, Montana, a week ago, she thought they meant it. She kept the key. But no, Ms. LBJ, that's not the way it's done in Billings, whose frugal city fathers give the same old key to all visiting dignitaries. It's inscribed Billings, star of the big sky country. Just drop it in any mailbox, Ms. Johnson, as you would a hotel room key and Billings guarantees postage. 
Well, all I hope is I can find that key. <laughs> <laughs> well, would you take proper action and see that the buildings, the people, are uh, you sorry you messed them up? find the key to take full advantage of it and uh, and uh, make sure that uh, we get some profit out of it politically and otherwise and if you don't find the key forget it to hell with them uh all right i'll look for the billings montana key uh, and then we, uh, if, we, uh, if we want to answer might get this on the line that uh got, got um, well i don't know got about uh October 1964, three weeks before the presidential election, the Johnson campaign was confronted with a major scandal. Walter Jenkins, one of the president's top aides, was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct for engaging in then-illegal gay activities in a YMCA bathroom. After consulting with advisors Abe Fortas and Clark Clifford, Lady Bird called her husband, who was on the campaign trail. She wanted to offer Walter Jenkins a job with one of her family's Texas television stations. Go ahead, please, Darling. Uh, can you hear me now? No, no, I can't. You just have to talk real loud. All right. I would like to do two things about Walter. Uh, I would like to offer him uh, the number two job at KTBC. Do you hear me? I wouldn't do anything along that line now. I just let them know generally through Tom that they have no problem in that connection. Go ahead, next. I, I don't think that's right. Uh, second, uh, when questioned, and I will be questioned, I'm going to say that this is incredible for a man that I've known all these years, a devout Catholic, the father of six children, a happily married husband. It can only be a small uh, a period of, of a nervous breakdown balanced against. I wouldn't say anything. I'd have a, uh, I just wouldn't be available for anything because it's not something you to get involved in now. And we're trying to work that out with the best minds that we have working on it. And Eddie Wise was on the way down there today. And whatever you do, don't do anything right. Talk to Eddie and Clark and Abe. I feel it's stronger than you do, but I don't want you to hurt him more than he's hurt. And when we move into it, we do we do that. We blow it up more and get it more. All right. Uh, I think if we don't express some support to him. I think 
that we will lose the entire love and devotion of all the people uh, who have been with us, or so drain them. Well, you get a hold of Clark and Abe and them and tell them how you feel about that, and see you see what advice I'm getting. And I'm late now, and I'm going to make three speeches, and you can imagine what shape I'm in to do it. So don't create any more problems than I've got. Uh, talk to them about it. Anything you can get them to approve, let me know. All right. Uh, Abe approves of the job offer. Abe approves of the statement. What? Abe approves of the job offer. Abe approves of such a statement when questioned. Well, talk to Clark. I must say that Clark does not approve of the latter. I think that you ought to let them know. I don't see any reason to know publicly, because then you become, you confirm it, you approve it, you're part of it, everything else. You just can't do that to the presidency, honey. I wouldn't do anything. Uh, I would try to get Aiden Clark to let me talk to Ms. Jenkins. And I think we ought to do that. I think you ought to tell him, and I think I ought to call him. All right, she's called me this morning, honey. Yes, what'd she say? Uh, she is uh, so hysterical and so bitter uh, that uh, I just, uh, that uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's dreadful. She feels that her life is ruined, that their life is ruined, and it's all been laid on the altar of, uh, of working for us. Was she angry at us? Yes. You see, she doesn't believe any of this. She believes it's a framed, put-up job. Well, I think somebody better go talk to her and tell her the facts. And I think maybe he ought to. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to join you this afternoon at 5.30. Uh, I, I will try to be discreet, but I, it is my strong feeling that a gesture of support to Walter on our part is best. I'd make all the gestures I could, but I don't think that I would put myself in the position of defending what we say in the public in a situation like this because we just can't win it. The average farmer just can't understand uh, your knowing it and approving it. Our condoning. Anymore, and again, Atchison uh, not turning his back. Would you, are you unalterably opposed to the job offer? I am publicly. I'm not unalterably opposed to giving him anything and everything we have, all of it. And let him know it through Tom and through Abe and through you. But I see no reason why I ought to be tried again uh, and blow it up and make the headlines that I, I gave him advancement because he did this. Uh, and I don't think that you'd have a license five minutes for the station being operated by someone like that. 
what about getting Ray Howard uh, to make a, a public uh, make public uh, a job offer in Walter's hometown? If he would. I just don't think he would do that. I don't think the job is the important thing. I think we can. The, the finances is the minimum thing, honey. I think a gesture of support on some of our part is uh, is necessary to hold our own forces together. Well, talk to Abe and Clark about it, and and. Um, my poor darling, my heart breaks for you too. Well, I know it, honey, and. Uh, and I guess I'll, and I, I suppose I'll, I'll let you go now. But if I get questioned, what I'm going to say uh, is that uh, I, I, I cannot believe this picture that's put before me of uh, this, this man uh, whom I've known all these years. Uh, and, and you've heard the adjectives I use. Does, uh, uh, does this, he this, know that he walked in after he left the Newsweek party voluntarily in the YMCA? Do I know that? Does she know it? I'm not sure that she does. Don't you think Tom ought to tell her or Abe right quick? I told him to do that yesterday. I believe that they have told her. I'm, I'm not, I do not know, but I don't know. No, they were all afraid to tell her. And I think she ought to know the truth. She's got to know the truth, and he's got to tell her. Abe ought to get him to tell her the truth. And uh, I think they ought to tell her what happened there. I think that's the first thing that's got to be done so she can understand. The second thing got to be done, they've got to tell her whatever we have, they have. Let's ride this thing out for two weeks. But the other side's not their friend. And even if they doubt we are, they'll have to, uh, have to understand. Does she doubt that we are? Uh, yes. What did she say we ought to do? Uh, she just said, you've, you've, you've ruined my life and you've ruined my husband's life, and uh, what am I going to tell my children? Well, how did we ruin it? Honey, uh, she is, uh, she just sees her life being ruined around her, and she's got to, she's got to reach out and, uh, and lash at somebody. And she thinks it was uh, uh, overwork and overstrain, uh, and uh, that caused him to do whatever he did. Well, I think I think that that's conceivable. And I think that's likely. But I didn't take him to cocktail party, and I, I didn't get him tired, and I didn't know it, and I never asked him to work any time that he didn't want to. Somebody's got to give her the other side. You better see. That's why I said you ought to go out last night. They wouldn't allow that. That's why I told Abe you ought to go out. He wouldn't do that. So Abe or Eddie Wise or some of them better go see her this morning. Because you don't, she'll be talking to paper. Uh, she will, darling. What? And I, and I, all right, then, if you don't mind me going to see her, I, if I can get the uh, company of somebody like Ed Wise or... Uh, or uh, or Tom Corcoran or anybody, I will. I don't think I would go. I think I'd talk to her again, tell them you asked them to come because I just blows her up real up in the picture. I don't think you realize the First Lady can't be doing it. 
I've got to go there holding the plane with the mayor and everybody on it. All right. We're an hour late now. My and love, my love, I'll pray for you along with Walter. Goodbye. And I, I think I would uh, get Abe at right quick and Clark and have Abe go see her if he could. I have her priest go talk to her. All right. You, you're a brave, good guy. And if, if you read where I've said some things in Walter's support, they'll be along the line that I've just said to you. You think I ought to call her? Uh, yes, I do. I do. I, I, I think we, I think we ought to offer uh, support uh, in, in every, any way we can. Well, why don't you talk to them and try to call her and tell her I'm in the plane? But I, I called you and asked you to, to call her and see if they won't clear you're doing it and tell her anything we have, they have. And you can't put them with the station with the license. Do you understand that? I hear you when you say it, but I just almost rather make uh, offer to do it and then let the license go down the drain. Well, but that doesn't do anybody any good, does it? Offer them something else, running the range. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. And uh, uh, exactly what he's getting. And tell her that. And have them tell him that. Better get Tom out there right away, though. All right. Uh, okay. Goodbye, my beloved. President Johnson wasn't the only member of his family to become a champion for civil rights. Lady Bird also undertook her own campaign. On October 6, 1964, she boarded a train in Washington, D.C. to stump through eight southern states. Here she is on October 8th in Valdosta, Georgia. The South and the whole nation at this election are at a crossroads between past and future. We face many problems together. Peace is one, and economic prosperity is another. We have reached good and workable solutions in the past through this partnership. And it takes men in Washington who care about the people of the South. And it takes citizens here at home with a vision of the future. Today, many parts of the South present one of the nation's proudest pictures of progress. A democratic victory means we will face new challenges together with imagination and zeal. We draw on the past for strength, but we do not plan to turn back. It was a gamble to help win back disaffected voters after the passage of the Civil Rights Act. The Johnson's oldest daughter, Linda, accompanied her mother on the trip and recalls it was a risk Lady Bird was willing to take. Mother didn't want the South to think that we didn't want their vote, that just because we knew that there were a lot of people who didn't uh, like the Civil Rights Bill, for instance, um, she hoped that she could appeal to them to, to recognize that that was a time that was coming and that change had to be made and we were moving forth and that there were also a lot of, of uh, African-American citizens who, who were there and we wanted to, to reassure them. Now, we ran into um, some people that didn't like us and that were very vocal. Uh, we heard that there were threats that they were going to blow the train up and so they, um, 
uh, ran a, a car through before ours is to think if, if it was on the tracks, they'd blow up the, the sidecar and, and not get us. But, uh, and then there were threats all along the way. But um, it was a wonderful success. And mother would, would stand on the back of the train like she'd seen Harry Truman do. And, and she would uh, uh, tell him how proud and how happy she was to be here. And she hoped that they would vote for her husband. Lady Bird Johnson's signature issue was conservation and the environment. She spoke out in favor of preserving wilderness areas, expanding national parks, and protecting wild rivers. The answers cannot be found in piecemeal reform. The job really requires thoughtful interrelation of the whole environment, not only in buildings, but parks, not only parks, but highways, not only highways, but open spaces and green belts. But beautification, to my mind, is far more than a matter of cosmetics. To me, it describes the whole effort to bring the natural world and the man-made world into harmony, to bring order, usefulness, delight to our whole environment. And that, of course, only begins with trees and flowers and landscaping. One of her most lasting contributions was the 1965 Highway Beautification Act. Here's historian Betty Boyd Caroli and author and journalist Cokie Roberts talking to C-SPAN in 2013 about how Mrs. Johnson's political skills helped get the bill through Congress. The uh, billboard lobby was very strong. I think we forget how strong it was. And I think maybe now the judgment is that she tried to do too much on that, that that, that was really very hard. But uh, she did. And Washington, I mean, people don't realize that this beautiful city we live in is much, much, much more beautiful because of her and Mary Lasker, her friend, who was a wonderful philanthropist. But, I mean, the, this, this profusion of flowers and trees and, and uh, the, the fact that you just come into the city and are greeted by just total beauty is a result of her having been here. And this was a compliment to Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs, or was it truly an independent campaign? Well, it was a little of both. I mean, we certainly associate it. That's something I think that we've required almost of every first lady since her. Uh, what will be your project? I think Michelle Obama was asked that even before the nomination. So it was, it was a little of both. It was a compliment to the Great Society, and it was also uh, uniquely hers. But the, her, the first ladies who have succeeded her, uh, particularly both, both Michelle Obama and Laura Bush, have said, have quoted her. Uh, that she has said, you know, I realized, and and I think that's part of what Betty was saying. You know, she took her a while, and she had to have that big landslide. Uh, she was no longer the heir to the job, uh, but she said, I realized I had a, a pulpit, and I could use it, and I could use it to do good, and uh, and she determined that she was going to do that. And they have taken those words and and followed them very consciously quoting her. Mm-hmm. Rosalind Carter also has made a point. And remember that she continued that work after the beautification, if we want to use that terrible term, right. which she hated she also. Hated it. But she continued it after she left the White House, I think until 1990, which is whatever it is, 22 years after leaving the White House. She continued to give that Highway Beautification Award out of her own pocket to uh, highway workers in Texas who had done most to beautify 
the highways of Texas. So I'm always interested in which first ladies continue their projects afterwards and which one forget that (laughs) they ever did that. Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson were married nearly 40 years. She passed away in 2007. She's buried next to her husband at their Texas ranch. Next time on Presidential Recordings, Lyndon Johnson deals with rising anti-war sentiment and makes a decision about his political future as the historic events of 1968 unfold. You can find out more about Lady Bird Johnson at firstladies.cspan.org. The Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library and Foundation, along with the University of Virginia Miller Center, have more conversations from the Johnson presidency. You can find them at lbjtapes.org.